Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. This is Jeffrey Frederick, and I'm unfortunately once again without Douglas Squirrel, but I am recording live at DevOps Enterprise Summit in Las Vegas, and I am joined by John Smart, who is the author of Sooner, Safer, Happier. Thanks for coming, John. Thank you. Thanks, Jeffrey. Uh, can you introduce yourself a bit to our audience? Other than being the author of this fabulous book, um, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved in Agile and publishing such a, mm. such a thing. Um, yeah, so I've been a, an Agile and Lean practitioner since the early 1990s. Um, and uh, in those days, it was called lightweight processes. Yeah. This was about seven years before the Agile Manifesto. Yep. They were lightweight processes and heavyweight processes. Yes. Um, my first role was um, on the trading floor in investment banking, and I was on the trading desk. And we were a multidisciplinary small team, mm -hmm. and we had a form of continuous delivery with daily deployments you know, with, uh, wow. with unique shell scripts uh, in the early... 1990s. And so for, for me, um, this is kind of back to the future. Um, and then over the course of my career, I've, as I've taken on more responsibility and teams have moved into my um, my area, uh, I've taken teams on the journey from traditional waterfall ways of working to working with agility or agile and lean ways of working during the course of my career, which led up to me volunteering to lead ways of working across Barclays Bank globally, across 120,000 people, um, which I did for four years from the beginning of 2015 to the end of 2018, learned a lot of lessons, learned a lot of lessons the hard way. And that's what led to the book, Sooner, Safer, Happier. And the book has now led to me running my own company, Sooner, Safer, Happier, the company. And we work with large traditional organizations to help them deliver better value sooner, safer, and happier. <laughs> Take them on that journey that you uh, have taken so many other people on. That's fantastic. I love hearing the phrase uh, lightweights, uh, you know, because I remember that in the, I came to it more in the, the late 90s. I know that at Snowbird, that was one of the debates, like, what are we going to call ourselves? And that people decided they didn't like the idea of being called lightweights. So <laughs> they ended up, one of the reasons they ended up with, uh, with Agile instead. And I understand the other, the, the other word that kind of made it in the shortlist of the two possible words was adaptive. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, which it's pretty good. Yeah. I, I think my, my my consulting company is Reflect Adapt, so mm -hmm. I'm I'm a I'm a fan of that word as well. Um, so you give a, a talk uh, here at DevOps Enterprise Summit on organizing for outcomes. Now, in in so partially that seems kind of strange. Like, well, obviously, don't we care about outcomes? Wouldn't we organize that way? But clearly, you must encounter a lot of people that aren't organized that way. What's happening in those places, and and what? How do you help them get around to organizing for outcomes? Yeah. So to quote Arthur W. Jones, who uh, spent his career on the topic of org design, every organization is perfectly optimized to get the results it gets. <laughs> so if your organization is getting the results it wants and everybody who works in it, every single employee is satisfied and happy with the results of the ways of working, fantastic, don't change, don't change a thing, please let the rest of the world know what your magic source is. Yeah. Um, and also just to add to that, even if an, or, you know, an organization can't be static and can't not change because mm. the environment around the company is changing all of the time. Mm. So if there is an organization which is always happy with the results it's getting, it means it must be always changing. Mm. So, uh, so if there is an organization that fits that category, please let me know. Yeah. I haven't yet come across an organization which is universally happy with the results that it's getting. <laughs> um, and, the big tectonic shift that I am seeing at the moment with the privilege of having a view across um, every industry sector mm -hmm. and large organizations, whether working with them directly or just in the network and the community, there is this, um, you know, I'm sure um, everyone will be well aware and everyone is seeing this, this big shift from role-based silos, 
which stems from 1771 and the first industrial revolution and division of labor back to how we've evolved into multidisciplinary teams and multidisciplinary teams of teams also known as tribes Mm -hmm. okay so it's kind of like you know uh, for for 1.9 million years this is how we have operated as um as as people and 1.9 million years is not homo sapiens but it is homo as in uh, yeah. humankind that's right um so there's this big big tectonic shift with organizations pivoting from role-based silos with a sequential way of working to multidisciplinary teams you know and maybe the language is squads, tribes, chapters, and guilds. Mm-hmm. So that was the topic of my talk. Right. And so I, I like how you, you, you ground this in, you know, homo evolution. And, and I think part of what you're saying here is this is the natural way for us to work. And I think this really is going back to kind of some of the early days of Agile. I often tell people that one of the most influential papers for me was when Alistair Coburn wrote a paper called People Considered a First Order Nonlinear Component of Software Development. Uh, uh, not a very humanistic title, but it was very tongue in cheek because he says the whole point here is while it's, I look around these software projects and they use different tools and, and a different given tool might succeed or fail. A process might succeed or fail. So if it's not about methodology and tools and process that drive success, what is it? Oh, it might be the people. <laughs> so maybe we should understand the attributes of people and take that into account with how we organize ourselves, period. And that sounds like that's what you're tapping into the same kind of idea. Yeah, it correct. It's um, it is obviously all about people. And a central tenant to this is incentives drive behavior. Mm-hmm. And behavior drives outcomes. Okay. If behave what's the definition of stupidity? Uh, doing the same thing again and again and expecting a different result. Exactly. Yeah. So to get a different result, there has to be a change in behavior. We have to do something differently. Mm-hmm. Um, what drives a change in behavior, incentive oh. or threat? Okay. So for, for me, that's kind of the, if I just use, the, when I use the word incentive, I'm, I am implying both in two but sides. Positive of and negative. Posi- yeah. Exactly. Positive side is incentive. The negative side is threat. Right. And my personal reflections uh, in all of the time of having a focus on ways of working and how we do things mm-hmm. is that you can boil down ways of working, how we humans collectively achieve a goal together to one word, which is incentive. Okay. You can just boil it down to that incentive. And from the neuroscience perspective, our brains are still wired for survival. Mm-hmm. You know, our brains are still, um, focused on avoiding being eaten by a tiger on the savannah. <laughs> so our brain, our evolution of our brains has not caught up right. with um, our lifestyle and our way of working and everything else. There's, there's another dimension I want to come to in a second. So from a neuroscience perspective, there is incentive and there is threat. Threat, the threat response is double the strength of the incentive response. Yep. It's twice as strong, it kicks in twice as quickly, and it lasts twice as long. Yep. Cortisol. Um, dopamine, in terms of uh, the, the incentive response, the reward response, is half, you know, yeah. um, half strength. And so, as humans, because, because you, you you want to make sure you're making the calculus to survive first, and 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 then correct. get the reward. L- losing losing a day's food might be more impactful to our survival than gaining a second day's food. Yeah, <laughs> because losing that day's food might mean might result in not surviving. Yeah. So so therefore. Uh, there's, there is less 
uh, gain attached to yep. me storing up three days worth of food as opposed to losing right. my my only bit of food. Yeah. Um, and so uh, so we have lo- we have a thing called loss aversion. So in terms of ways of working, in terms of changing how we do what we do, people are from a neuroscience perspective are genetically wired to to rather do nothing than do something and fail. Mm. Hence the importance of psychological safety. Right. Because if there is a, even a whiff of a lack of psychological safety, even a whiff of threat, mm-hmm. which means we lose our jobs, we can't pay the mortgage, we can't pay the bills, you know, and, and so on, then we would rather nod and smile and do nothing <laughs> and, and pretend and, you know, quiet quitting type, type which, stuff. Which you, see, which you see plenty of in organizations Lots. that are undergoing their transformation. Head in the sand. Yeah, a blowover. We'll, we'll just wait. You know, just this wait. is another. This is another one of the cycle. Yeah. In six months, they'll have forgotten, and all they're going to care exactly. about will be back to business exactly. as usual. So the incentive has to be really, really high yeah. in terms of because you. Like, you, always, order, you, you keep using the word incentive, and I want to. I want to ask you about this because people might hear you and say, "Okay, you worked at a bank, and you're talking about incentive. Clearly, you're talking about monetary reward. Clearly, you're talking about my bonus, and and that's fine if you're at you know Barclays or something like that. But for my company. We don't get a lot of discretionary, you know, compensation. So, what, what's the incentive for me? Um, yeah, and thank you for asking that question because that's absolutely not what I mean by okay. the word incentives. Yes. So, uh, thank you for providing the opportunity to clarify that. Um, incentives are both implicit and explicit. Mm-hmm. So, the implicit incentives will be the, the group social norms fitting in, um, and in particular, um, in terms of Western cultural typology. Yeah. And Ron Westrom, who's here at the DevOps Enterprise Summit. Um, spoke yesterday um, if you're in a pathological culture uh, you know pathological bureaucratic or generative um, most people in order to survive uh, like a chameleon will change their color so one minute you're reporting to one leader and your color is blue <laughs> and then you have a change of leader and the leader has different set of values and principles and behavioral style mm-hmm. quite a lot of people not everybody quite a lot of people the chameleon changes color because you're incentivized because of the incentive. It's not an explicit incentive. It's not a bonus. Yes. It's social norms and fitting in. And actually, the, 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 that's a link from implicit to explicit because by fitting in with what our the person who's going to determine our pay and our promotion, mm-hmm. bonus or no bonus, but just you know, comp yeah. um, and promotion ability and actually just job, just having a job and not being made redundant or being fired – there is a there is both an implicit and an explicit incentive there mm-hmm. to fit in and to look good with the with you know, the the poor way of working where it's one individual who is determining the pay and the promotion for people who report to them, yes. which is typically how it works in most traditional organisations. Yes. So there's the implicit incentives is fitting in the behavior the explicit would be the bonus mm-hmm. payment it would be the hr reward system and how it works yes for example terrible um uh, reward system of stack ranking um, yes. as popularized by um what was the uh, welsh jack welsh oh ge ge yeah. in terms of stack ranking and i had the misfortune of working at an organization that did the stack and rank uh, yeah. yeah you know stack rank yank yeah. Um, bottom ten percent were given their notice every single year, yep. just because they were the bottom ten percent, not because they should have lost their jobs. I think this is still common. I mean, Amazon, for example, still has this, and and they will, you know, uh, hire. I've heard that they will hire people to fire them to make their their firing quota. That's crazy, which is ridiculous. That's crazy. Uh, um, I heard from people like if you're a good manager and you've developed your team, 
it doesn't matter. You still are required to cut people, even if they're all perfectly adequate, better than people in their role in other departments. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's inhumane. It's, like, it's it's inhumane treatment of people. And this is yeah, this is my main purpose and what you know gives me purpose in life mm-hmm. is is around more humane ways of working. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm really focused on. That's an inhumane treatment of people yeah. to to behave like that. And I unfortunately have been in that system and felt the pain. Where, where I, we got to the point, you know, and this is, I quote, um, all the fat has gone, we're now cutting into the bone. Yeah. Now, even that analogy is not a good analogy. No. So, so we have, we, you know, I have unfortunately have worked in a system which meant that people who were doing a really good job were getting a performance appraisal, which didn't reflect that they were doing a really good job. Right. And in one particular case, with this particular individual, we decided that she would rather be demoted to a lower grade mm. and then she started getting exceeds expectations, mm. which she should have been getting anyway. But because she was being compared to her peer group, it wouldn't have been possible to say she was doing a great job. Because you had a quota. It's ill. You, it's you, an yeah, ill right. system. Yeah. It's unfit. It's inhumane. So um, so this is what I mean by incentives and incentives drive behavior. Right. Um, and so in terms of organizing for outcomes... The, the second big theme that I wanted to talk about here is is how, we, as we were saying, you know, we have evolved in multidisciplinary teams in, in with a small number of social connections. Mm-hmm. By the way, there's a side note here on the Dunbar number. Mm-hmm. The 150 Dunbar number is an edge case. Mm-hmm. It's in a survival case. Um, the, the actual Dunbar number is far, far smaller. And there's, there's rings to the Dunbar number. Okay. There was a, there was a 2018 article um, it's it's actually more like the two pizza sized team. Okay, only in, only in the in the villages threatened. Mm-hmm. You, can you get to know have one hundred and fifty social connections in your brain? Mm-hmm. But actually, it's it's even for a value stream, you know, or you know, squads, tribes, chapters, and guilds, whatever language you're using. Actually, a better number is about fifty. Okay, so a little side note on the Dunbar number. Um, the big theme here is we're going from division of labour. Early 1700s, this was the big pivot with the first industrial revolution, uh, the first cotton mill. For the very first time, we had a thousand people working together. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, there had never been a thousand people working together in one factory. And the division of labor was extreme with 15 different specialities. So it went from being skilled domestic work done at home to then completely destroying that skilled domestic work yeah. so that now it was unskilled labor because it had been so specialized. Right which meant that children could do it, yes. which meant that 75% of the people in this first factory were children. Um, and that way of working is still in the DNA of nearly every large organization today. Right. That division of labor way of working mm-hmm. is still in the DNA of most large companies. However, we are now starting to see a tectonic shift back to multidisciplinary teams aligned to the flow of value, aligned to customers, with more humane ways of working. That's the topic of my talk, and that's, a, that's the topic of my focus yeah. uh, at the moment. And it, this really resonates with me. I've, I've said for a number of years that my motivation, or I'm personally motivated by, is reducing suffering in software development, which is a, maybe a strange thing, but it's you know having seen people struggling in different ways, and that could be tooling, it could be organizational, but that they, they come to accept suffering as normal. And then they experience what it's like to not suffer, and they never want to go back. They never want to go. But, but first, the question of is that even possible? And as you say, that the division of labor being part of the DNA, it's pe- what people expect. They get socialized 
somehow, you know, through media or movies or something. I say this is often why we have so much, so many bad bosses because people grow up watching bad bosses on, on TV and movies because it makes more drama. The dysfunction is makes good entertainment, but it makes a terrible workplace. Um, so that's the, I think there's my, my own personal, uh, theory about why people, how people get socialized into poor behavior at work. I have a take on that, which is personally, mm-hmm. I believe it's because that's the system of work that people join when yeah. they leave school or college or university. Mm-hmm. And this is why I've, I believe it's important to reflect and shine a light on where we've come from, right. which is why I included it in my talk. There is a, uh, quite uh, understandably, when people leave from education and start working, especially in a knowledge industry, mm-hmm. you join a system of work and you're joining at this entry point and you, you, know, you probably don't have a view of the last 250 years and how we got <laughs> to this point. You just join it and it's like, well, that's how this, normal. Is, this is how it works. This is, yeah. this, is, this is, oh, so this is what a big corporation is like. Okay. So actually what you're learning from is you're learning from the bad behavior of the people around you in the company you've just joined. Yeah. I, I personally believe uh, maybe that's then amplified with what you're watching in films and on television, mm-hmm. but you, you, you're, you're conditioned. And to your point around um, uh, Stockholm syndrome, you didn't call it Stockholm syndrome, but Stockholm syndrome, mm-hmm. um, absolutely 100% see this a lot where, and, and there was one particular team that I inherited and I said to these three people, um, you know, your system of work is so terrible, so inhumane because it was feast to famine, mm-hmm. working unsustainable hours with really low quality, really low levels of engagement. Why haven't you left this organization? I would, I would have <laughs> years ago. And the answer was, we're united through a common suffering. <laughs> wow. That was what was keeping those people there. Yes. There was a shared suffering experience, Stockholm syndrome. Right. And, and they would rather have people uh, have a shared joyous experience <laughs> keeping them there. Definitely. I remember uh, I have some uh, quote uh, Brian Merrick's article on the four forgotten agile values, uh, skill, discipline, ease, and joy. And he, he talks about uh, people, uh, work. everyone deserves to work on projects that are so good they brag about them at cocktail parties. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I, I've always loved that, uh, yeah. the, the view of it. Yes, absolutely. And in that context, I use the word pride. Mm, yes. So I, I think pride is a really important <clears throat> word to focus on with teams. And that, and that can include speaking at a conference like this, right. you know, whether it's an, in, an individual speaking at a conference or whether it's your organization is speaking at a conference that generates pride. It's like, oh, we're up on the stage. We're talking about you know, the journey <laughs> we're on and what we've learned. This, this is my second question uh, in, in one-on-ones, which is, are you able to do work that you're proud of? Yeah. Um, and that's the thing. I think I, my view is that people have a drive for that. And if there's something that's holding them back, they'll tell you. And then as you're a leader, it's your job is to fix that. <laughs> what is it that's, that prevents people from doing the work they're proud of because they want to? This is a very, you know, uh, theory Y instead of theory X. You know, people are internally motivated to do good things. They don't need a minder watching the clock, making sure that they're working to rule. That's not an effective, humane way to work. And uh, it's much better to tap into people's implicit mm-hmm. uh, uh, drive to succeed. And, and that and that in particular was part of the whole mindset shift with the beginning of the first industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. The, the, the act of automation yes. um, meant that now there was uns- there were unskilled workers. And that's that was what that was really a very strong part of the mindset has been for the last 250 years. In a, in a manual labor, repetitive, knowable context, which is very different from knowledge work in an unknowable context. Mm-hmm. So in a, in a mass production knowable context with unskilled labor, that the unskilled humans are just literally cogs in a machine, repetitively doing tasks, not using their brain. 
and that drives the you know, theory X, theory Y. You yes. Know, and and not, and not but also the system that people are in doesn't incent back to the word incentive doesn't incentivize continuous improvement and right. u- using your brain and there's going to be no credit given. You're, you're being told not to think. Exactly. You, no no one wants to hear your ideas. One hundred percent pushed down. And hence, then we see the an example General Motors. You know, well published example um, and uh, the This American Life podcast yeah. interview. On, on Numi, it was fantastic. Exactly, yeah. on Numi. Alcoholism, drug taking, unrest between the managers and the workers. It's all to do with the culture and the behaviour and how people are being treated. Same factory, same people, Toyota come in and run it. Um, yeah, and, 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 and people are motivated because of the, the way people are being treated. Right. It was, a, it was a remarkable episode of taking the worst performing plant and getting it to be much better with keeping the same people. And that was yeah. the key thing. It was the yeah. same personnel yeah. doing it. So fantastic uh, story and, and a, a good example of how changing the organization can it changes the culture. And so organizing for outcomes then uh, can be much more effective. If our listeners hear this and they uh, have questions for you or they disagree with something you've said and, and they want to argue with you about it or praise you or learn more, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Some intellectual discourse. Yes. Uh, uh, best way would be probably to connect on LinkedIn, uh, direct message me on LinkedIn. Great. I've, um, well, in the show notes, we'll have a link to your LinkedIn and also uh, Sooner Safer Happier. And uh, if people want to argue with me and Squirrel and uh, have intellectual discourse, of course, uh, look on agileconversations.com where you'll find our email address and our Twitter and uh, past episodes, uh, transcripts, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and of course, you can hear us again next Wednesday on Troubleshooting Agile. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks, Jeffrey.